little nerds and nerdettes. Junior ambassadors, boys and girls of all ages. We're nerds and uh, we're pretty proud of it. You're entering the Nerd United Nations podcast. Never apologize for being nerdy. All things geek are up for grabs. Because unnerdy people never apologize for being assholes. Now, here's your ambassadors, Melissa Nicholson and Jared Boots. Welcome, nerds and nerdettes, to a very magical episode of Nerd Eye Nations podcast. I'm your host, ambassador of the Great White North of Canada and Ravenclaw, Melissa Nicholson. Both of our owls have safely arrived and we have your letters. We are really excited to follow up from our Harry Potter episode and answer all of your Harry Potter questions. I can't do this alone. Well, I probably could, but <laughs> not to brag or anything, but it wouldn't be as fun. So I need help answering them. And that person to help me is my co-host, ambassador for the Midwest United States, and newly sorted Hufflepuff, Jared Boots. How are you, Jared? Oh, I'm a little sore because of our us delaying this recording, but I'm good. How about you? <laughs> you know what? I'm doing pretty good. <laughs> for those who don't know, uh, we were supposed to record this a few days earlier, but I asked most of the postponents so we could go to see a corn concert and... Say at 37 years old, my neck isn't built for headbanging like it used to be. <laughs> <laughs> oh, but I, I'm excited to finally get around to answering all these questions we've been receiving. Yeah, me too. I've been really enjoying um, seeing all the questions that have come in and some really awesome questions. Um, they, they definitely haven't been your kind of run-of-the-mill generic questions so i yeah really like them and excited to answer them so i think without further dudes i think we should get to it all right So our first question, or two questions, coming from uh, David Wang, friend of the show, and Ravenclaw. Okay, his first question is, what did y'all think about the Dumbledore versus Voldemort duel in the book film, and how scary is it when you retrospectively think realize that Voldemort was doing so well against the freaking Elder Wand? Melissa, your thoughts? Um, I think it, I mean... Uh, to start with the second question, um, I don't know if it's really all that scary because, I mean, if you really think about it, Voldemort has been, you know, kind of building himself up over these few years. And so now he's kind of come into his own power. And so, you know, it's very much like it's, you know, the the to kind of be like Star Wars, like the lights and the dark side. So each side has their powers. And so 
it, it is kind of terrifying when you do kind of when you do think about it that you know Voldemort can certainly you know hold his own against that um but it's you know it's it's also if you think about it that he's you know been building himself up and now he's at this point of you know being incredibly powerful so it's really no surprise that he could hold his own against it but when you think of the elder wand it is also the most powerful one so but then you know Dumbledore himself is you know pretty powerful as well so um i think they're on that equal plane um with that and you know i like you know the dumbledore voldemort duel in, in both the book and the film um i definitely like it more in the film because obviously it comes to life and you get to see it on screen and um you know i think that's really cool it was really really awesome to see on the big screen when i got to see it in the theater and um very cool moment so yeah Do you kind of hear this? We're close to the same page. Oh, okay. <laughs> um, so why we're close to it then? <laughs> well, I think if it's a very, I got very close to that. Um, first thought that came through my head is very much the story of Darth Vader. Because um, when he leaves the Jedi to become a Sith Lord. So he's able to go off and learn. Like you said, that Voldemort builds up his own once he leaves Hogwarts. Very much in the vein of like Anakin Skywalker once he leaves the Jedi to become Darth Vader. Um, even though he's no longer receiving that training, he did. He's able to find his own training. And you have to think with like a dark side of magic that he's able to delve into so much more powerful stuff than could ever imag- be imagined. So he, I think with that kind of stuff, you have to be prepared for almost anything. And it makes you kind of, well, as of this recording, not have seen all the Fantastic Beast films. You have to assume that maybe Grundelwald went through is somewhat similar to. That even though he's no longer at Hogwarts, he's out of his own. He's able to do some research on some very, very dark stuff. So who knows what he could be capable of. So I think it's. I think I think we've seen it in films before that the evil, the villain, has been able to hold his own against the good, no matter how powerful a weapon has, just because they have that. I guess what would what, the emperor say in the Ridge of the Sith? Unlimited power. <laughs> yeah. To uh, to go there, I guess, for lack of a better term, if they yeah. need to. So they need to have. Any little trick up their sleeve, they need to be, have anything that can counter anything that the good guy could throw at them. Mm-hmm. So I think it's, I think it's, I guess you could say, uh, not very scary that he can hold his own against the Elder One, but it's, I'd say it's very typical of like a good versus evil battle that we've seen before. Yeah, very much so. And I mean, even, you know, when you look back at, you know, like Tom Riddle, like he was somebody who, you know, people were scared of, were intimidated by. So you knew even early age, he was somebody who who's not to be sort of messed with. Like he already knew a lot of things. So, you know, he was slowly, you know, from that, even he was building himself up to be who he ultimately becomes. And yeah, he, um, 
shaking hand. Like I mean, you know, it's it's a little more maybe scary when you think of like Voldemort not being intimidated by Dumbledore. Because, you know, very much in the early days he was. If Dumbledore was around, Voldemort was not there. You know, he was the reason why like he was able to keep, you know, Harry safe. Um, but when he wasn't around, you know, Harry would have his scar hurt more and, you know, he would be really feeling that. So, you know, it's it's that I think is the most scary thing is when, OK, Voldemort's not intimidated by him anymore, but he probably still knows that Dumbledore has that power. But, yeah, it's very much the, you know, the good, the, the light, the dark side, the good, the bad battle, ultimately. But, yeah. And uh, I, I agree with you, too, and seeing it, uh, seeing the duel between them put on the screen, it's, the books are good, but it's also, there's also that sort of satisfaction of seeing it for yourself, too. For sure. Like, like, your mind can come up with a lot of amazing things when you apply it to that. Mm-hmm. But seeing it portrayed on screen is also pretty good, too, because you can see how it compares to what you imagine, too. Exactly. But um, going back, I, yeah, it's not really scary that Voldemort can hold his own because I think it's, it's it's just something we've all seen before. Yeah. It's typical of your 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 typical good versus evil story. And make what you said though about how Tom was something Tom Riddle was something to be scared about. It makes me wonder like he also probably could have been a good Ravenclaw too because he seemed very um. Because they show in the films and the books that he was very into knowing more and more and more. Like he was seeking more information about stuff. Mm-hmm. That he had a passion for not knowing stuff. So as far as he also didn't get sort of, he could have been a Ravenclaw as a as a backup. Yeah, he definitely could have. Yeah, definitely not a not a far fetched possibility. But, um, and I guess, I guess in a way that could be scary too, is that he had this thirst for knowledge to learn more. Mm-hmm. He wanted to learn every odd and end he could about this world that was essentially new to him when he was in the orphanage. Um, so he wanted to know every possible thing he could to achieve the level of success, success that he wanted, whether it be for good or for evil. Mm-hmm. So he had that, I don't want to say no conscience or something like that, but he just had this, uh, I don't know what the phrase I'm trying to think of, but he just has this, because it's not really reckless abandon either, but he just has this, just I guess maybe a desire for absolute power. or Yeah, like a, like a motivation to be sort of... <sighs> to be kind of a 10 steps ahead kind of person. I don't know if that makes sense. Like to be that one who's on top, who knows more than anybody else because he was very much at the bottom of the barrel. So he's kind of getting himself out of that by learning more and gaining that power through knowledge. Well, there's, Two, there's always usually two different type of people that learn from their experiences. Cause they, I think it's been said before that Harry and Voldemort come from very similar backgrounds, almost down, almost down to a T, one would say. Then 
Tom Riddle took his background and his new heritage and used it to get back at everybody else that mistreated him while Harry used it to be something better. Mm-hmm. So there's always, there's almost always like two ways you could take something. You take something, you do something bad, you, you mess up in your life, you could either take it as a life lesson or you could just rue on it and stew on it. Mm. Yeah, it's always that, you know, it's the bad person chooses to just run with, you know, what they've done to continue that, or it's, you know, the person who's done something and, you know, they're ultimately a good person because they chose to learn from it and be better than what they did. So, yeah. So can you imagine if can you imagine if Harry wanted revenge on the Dursleys the way that Riddle wanted revenge on everybody else, on Muggles in general? Or like yeah, he still gets his like little shots here and there on uh, Dudley and on that and them, but it's not like he's actually about like seeking to kill them or anything for how they treated him. Because at the end mm-hmm. of the day, they still were his family. Even though the Weasleys ended up being more of a family to him than the Deersleys were. But um, can you imagine if Harry, though, went that route and was seeking revenge on the Deersleys for how they treated him? Oh, boy. I mean, I could I could see it. You know, if he he would have that, you know, found that that motivation to do it. Um, you know, because when there's little moments within this you know, time period where he, if he gets really angry at something, like, he's full-on, like, in it. And, you know, if people didn't, you know, like, ground him or hold him back from it, oh, my God, he would be... <laughs> it would really be a good thing, but, you know. How how many times did he almost kill Draco Malfoy? <laughs> what? <laughs> at least once. Yeah. Because he, he just got to second that. Sampara. Yeah. So. Who knows? Maybe we went too in depth in this question, but it's a good question. Um, but I think with Voldemort being that evil side, I think it's not really surprising or scary that he was able to hold his own. But what is scary about it is his, what is, when he was a student of Hogwarts, was his thirst for knowledge to learn everything he could when he's. Uh, when he cornered a, um, I can't think of his name. I just his name just slipped out of my head. Uh, Slughorn. Oh yeah, so he's good. asking Slughorn about Horcruxes and everything, and all mm-hmm. that kind of stuff. So that I think that aspect would probably be more scary, just because I guess you have to say like Riddle's biggest weapon had to be his brain. Oh, absolutely. He would know everything he could to take these people, like to take people down. Mm-hmm. Started off as like minuscule stuff, like framing, framing uh, Hagrid for opening the Chamber of Secrets, and then escalates there to like the death of Moaning Myrtle and everything else from there on out. So. Mm-hmm. Any other thoughts on David's first question? Uh, no, it was a, a really great question. 
So uh, his second question is, what did you think of the Half-Blood Prince memory effects? I thought I really liked it. Um, I thought it was interesting that they, you know, the using the pensive to, you know, look back on on different things. And I mean, it was to, you know, piece things together and figure out things, right? So, you know, it was just another thing that they they used. But yeah, it was interesting that they, you know, using that to look back and and uh, see things. I agree. I think it's it's much more effective than just having an exposition dump for one of the characters. You could just have Dumbledore sit there and just explain it all. But I kind of want to see that. Like, I want to see the Marauders messing with Snape or all sort of stuff. Because you could just have Hermione go and look it up and have her tell like, oh yeah, well it seems like uh, your father and all and his friends weren't very nice to. To him, or you could have Snape just sit there in an exposition dump. So I think having the pences and seeing it for yourself and see it all play out and have Harry make the connections in his head, mm-hmm. I think it play. I think it's a lot better effect than just having somebody just do an exposition dump on it. Yeah, for sure. And I like that, you know, you know, like I appreciate in films when they, you know, they're telling a story of of something, like telling a history of something or or whatever. But you know, I do appreciate that, especially if you're you know, someone doesn't really, you know, you might not fully know something about it. So then in the film, they'll tell you. Whereas I really like their approach in this where they're using the pensive to look back and you you kind of get to be there. You get to see that moment. So it's not really them explaining anything. It's showing you that this is what went on. And um, I really like that. And I realize with a film that you are um, restricted to a certain runtime. So it seems like most films would take the approach and just do an exposition. Dump, but I'm glad this, these films took the time to just show it to like, hey, we need this pensive in here. Mm-hmm. So, so I'm glad that the director took the time and say, hey, this is what we need. Otherwise, we're just going to have the character sitting here and explaining stuff and it's just going to be boring. Yeah, like they could have so easily just kind of done that, but they they chose to, because I mean it's in the book where they're, he's using the pensive and um, you know he uses it quite a bit, um, but it's helping him piece things together and figure things out. And so yeah, it's it's really nice that like you said they took that time to include that in there. It became an important part of the story too, and they I love how they kept that as a part of the story too, in in the film Half Blood Prince too, because he has this um, Dumbledore gives Harry this mission to get this memory from Slughorn that hasn't been altered, and it's also helping them piece together the puzzles how to get Tom Myrtle or to figure out where the Horcruxes are and all this other stuff too. So uh, I know they didn't put a lot of them in the film, but I. I do love the pivotal part they play in the film. So, so I'm glad they didn't remove them completely because it was able to explain lots of important parts of the plot without just making an ex- a simple exposition dump. For sure. Yeah, I think if if they didn't include that, I probably would have been a little bit disappointed with that. Like, I, I probably would have been fine with whatever they might have chosen to done and to chosen to do instead. Uh, but 
I, I like that they kept that. Because it almost seems like sometimes exhibition dump is just a lazy way of getting around stuff. Almost, yeah. Well, like you said, you're also fit for time when you do a film meditation. So I'm glad they took the time to do that because while there are faults and there could be faults found in all the films, um, I think mostly like leaving, I think leaving pensive memories out of the uh, Haploid Prince would have hurt it bad. Oh, for sure. Yeah, I agree with that. So, David, thank you for the questions. Um, I did ask Victoria the question you had, too. Um, unfortunately, our schedules have not been able to hook up yet to get her answer on it, but I promise I'll get that to you when I can. Uh, David asked about um, a Half-Blood Prince memory spinoff, which I'm, I'm a little fuzzy on our uh, last two episodes, but we believe Victoria said something about maybe she'd like to see a, a spinoff series with the Marauders. I think, but uh, once I can, once Victoria and I and can get our schedules to line up, I will ask her and we'll get you an answer to that. So thank you, David, so much for writing in. So we have another question, and it is from Shauna, and she is a Ravenclaw. She asks, a lot of fans think that the fact that Snape's Patronus was a doe for Lily means he truly did love her after all these years. Others say he was a jealous stalker considering how he acted towards Harry. Thoughts? So let's start with you, Jared. Um, I think it was a sign of true love, I think. Like they they kind of portray Snape as kind of a stalker in some of the pensive memories that he gives Harry. But I never got the vibe that he was a stalker, how he treated Harry. But I think it's a sign of true love because... Harry's Patronus is a stag, much like his father's. So that to me, that symbolizes an act of pure love. Also, his love for his parents, even though they were both killed when he was what one. Mm. So, I think it could also be a an effect of true love um, towards Lily. That, that that's how much he actually cared that he took on her pensive, or some of his happiest memories come from. The time he spent bonding with her. But then I'm I'm still new to this world, so I don't know how Patronuses are created. Um or how each person has their own separate animal for Patronus. But I would I would say it's an act of true love towards Lily. What about you? Well, I um same page <laughs> but, um no i i i agree with you on that and i i definitely think that he really did love lily um because you know when you look back at you know when you see them you know bonding and taking that time and you know lily saw him for who he was like she didn't see him as some weirdo as others did he was very much kind of he was very much a loner. He was very much on his own. He was very much the outcast of a group. And Lily didn't see that. She saw past that. She saw a good person. And, you know, that's why they were friends. And I think Snape really loved her for that, that she didn't, you know, 
ever judge him for who he was, didn't ever make fun of him, you know, was never mean to him and was a genuine friend to him. And I think that's, you know, I, I think he he's, you know, always loved her. And I think that's definitely, you know, him, his Patronus being a doe for Lily definitely, I think, means that he he's really really loved her even after all these years and um has definitely you know never let that go um and patronuses are created from your happiest moments so if you're you know you think of like the the happiest time in your life and you it creates that it creates that light because that's the time you feel the most happy and when you're pushing out that you know brightest of energy and so that's what Patronus is I'm not 100% sure on like how like the animal part is created but I know from but I know that the Patronus is from your happiest memory so yeah, that, I, that I knew yeah would be yeah the dope for Lily so I don't think he was ever he didn't really come off as as the jealous stalker type that I didn't I don't really see that. Um, I think a lot of it, and, and I, I don't want to answer this one too much because I, I kind of have a similar answer for an, an upcoming question. Um, but I, I don't think he ever acted that way towards Harry. Um, he he. I feel like he he saw James in Harry, and so I, I think that's that's maybe why a lot of his sort of attitude towards him was for that reason. Um, but <laughs> um, but yeah, I don't I don't see him being the, the jealous soccer type. Um, that that definitely doesn't come off in any way. Um, but yeah, I, I do agree that. Yeah, Snape really loved Lily, and um, I think that that Patronus definitely proves that. If anything, they is they make Snape seem like a jealous stalker. They do have him look when in his younger days when he's going after Lily. It does make him seem like he's just kind of lingering there, staring at them. Mm. But I could see like the jealous part with Harry the golden child here so i like you said he says he sees a lot of james and harry and he's never let never able to let that go it seems like up until his death mm-hmm. so i could see where the jealous part would come from there like he's very i think he's very jealous towards harry because harry gets away with a lot of shit in the books too and um stalker thing like i think they kind of portray him in the flashbacks as being kind of stalkery towards lily but that but in the end i just think it was i snape somebody found somebody who saw his true self um in the end like you said mm-hmm. and if they weren't together then it was at least his best friend mm-hmm. and i have a lot of friends that i love including you <laughs> yes and you <laughs> yeah. Well, thank you, Shauna. That, that was a great question. Mm-hmm. Uh, I really like that one. 
So our next question comes from Emily Simons, who's also a Gryffindor. And her question is, what was your most upsetting death and why? <laughs> uh, I'm going to, my my immediate thought is Dobby. <laughs> I mean, that, that I, I, I've always, I've always loved Dobby. I mean, I, as much as he's, he, yeah, he kind of is a little annoying creature, but you, you still got to love him and, you know, what he does, you know, basically to, to ultimately sacrifice himself, that was really kind of upsetting because you really come to like him and it was really sad seeing him seeing him die. So, yeah. <laughs> what What's yours, Jared? I think I jokingly told Emily it was going to be Lavender Brown <laughs> <laughs> in the least in the movies, but... um. I think I'm with you on Dobby. And the reason why I say that, and if you listen back to that episode, that that one really, I had that, that was the bombshell I had about Deathly Hollows. And um, because Dobby annoyed the ever living shit out of me <laughs> in uh, Chamber of Secrets. But um, I think one of the reasons reasons why Dobby's upset me more is because being so late to the books and films that so many deaths were spoiled for me. Yeah. So when they got when I got to them, they weren't as upsetting. Like had I, because I have I believe that maybe if I didn't wait so long to read the books to the films, maybe Fred's death would have upset me more. Because mm. Fred and George were my first favorite characters before it became the whole Weasley family. Or maybe Sirius's death would have affected me more, or Snape's, or Dumbledore's, but or even Hedwig. But so many of them got spoiled for me, some intentionally, some unintentionally. That it's, it, I really lost a lot of emotion when deaths happened. And and I mean that makes perfect sense. I mean for me, like a lot of those that you mentioned were you know, definitely emotional for me because like I've been a fan from the very beginning. So, you know, being on this journey with these characters and, you know, through the books and through the films and, you know, you really, you know, make that, that really strong connection with them. And, you know, when something bad like them dying happens, it's heartbreaking. And it definitely was like, you know, I mentioned immediately, you know, Dobby being, you know, a, uh, probably the most upsetting um which it, it definitely is for me but a lot of like you know Sirius's death and Dumbledore's and you know Snape and all that like yeah those were definitely emotional but then I've been on this journey for you know a long time so you create that connection and and I could see it with you that yeah being late to it you might not have that such a strong you still have a connection to these characters but it's it's not as strong as somebody like me who's been from like day one, and and then yeah, being kind of ruined from people unintentionally and intentionally, you know, spoiling these things. So yeah, that kind of would ruin it as well, which is it, it kind of makes me sad because it's you know you, you gotta. I was so excited for you, you know, like discover a lot of this stuff, and I it was so hard for me to keep quiet because I wanted to just blah all this stuff. 
<laughs> but I'm like, no, I want you to to just engage yourself with the world and explore it and whatever. And it's it makes me sad that it was spoiled for you. Um, but that happens, I guess. <laughs> yeah. I think what make, probably makes Dobby's death more upsetting is it's probably one of the deaths they spend the most time on besides Dumbledore and Snape's. Yeah. Because that's one thing I didn't really like about... Um, well, Cedric Diggory's has a lasting effect on Harry, too. Mm-hmm. But um, it really seems like Snape and Double, Snape and Double were good a lot of times, but it seems like even in the book and in the films, Fred's death is glossed over, Tonks's death is glossed over, Mad Eye's death is glossed over, um, and so is Lupin's. Mm. And Sirius gets a lot of effect on him, um, has a lasting effect on Harry too. But it seems like a lot of the other deaths are just kind of glossed over. Go like, oh, Harry turns over and looks over and sees that Tonks and Lupin are lying next to each other motionless. Or even in the films, you just see Lavender Brown laying there. Of, of course, they couldn't have a werewolf on top of her, like, gnawing at her jugular or whatever. That would have been kind of badass, though, actually. But, um, <laughs> um, see, so obviously, you can't have that kind of stuff there. But it's just, like, I think that's what makes Dobby's death so more hitting that. And he was in the middle of saving Harry and everybody, too. So... You yeah. see how how it has that effect on Harry too because how he treated Dobby for so long. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah. Well, even in the book, even in the books, um, Hedwig's death is just kind of glossed over too. Yeah. Very unceremoniously too, I would say. Mm-hmm. Very much, but I mean, you know, it 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 does come down to. You know, there there are so many deaths. It's like, how many can you, you know, really strongly focus on, right? Like, it, it would have been nice to see a little bit more from these other ones, but you know, I think it's a a, a sense of well, you got to pick the ones that you're going to focus on, and that was, you know, whatever the those choices were made. That okay, these ones are the ones we're going to focus on. So, yeah. Well, I think I talked about it before. It's, I think like the Fred, like Fred's death in the film, really gets glossed over because a you don't have you don't have Charlie and Bill in the movies very long. Um, I don't think you Charlie's not in any of the films, and then Bill you don't meet until Deathly Hollows Part One, and then you don't have Percy's redemption arc in the films. So I really think that's a big thing that stings against the Deathly Hollows films for, for Fred's death because Percy is the one that's with Bill. Or no, Percy's the one that's with Fred when Fred dies. So you don't have that. You just have Harry coming back and seeing all the Weasleys gathered around Fred. Mm-hmm. Like you said, there's so many characters going on that you just can't have them all linger. You can't linger too long on all of them. So... They do well with like having the effects of Sirius and Cedric Diggory staying with Harry for a long time after they're after they've passed. Um, but even though some ones that don't get many films, they'll hang on them like the death of Dumbledore and Snape. They definitely 
have their heavy impacts too. But I think I really think of all those, I think Dobby, Dobby's death has that lasting effect too on Harry. Mm. Or at least a more or a more of an emotional hit to him. Yeah, I would agree because you know Dobby really cared for Harry um, as much as he might have annoyed him. <laughs> um, you know, Dobby, Dobby really loved Harry. Um, you know, he helped him a lot in, in in a lot of ways. And you know, I think you know one when. when and and I think Carrie cared for for Dobby as well cuz I mean he gave him the sock you know so that he could be free and so you know th- I think that was definitely yeah he he cared for Dobby too as much as he was you know kind of annoying but you you got to love him yeah <laughs> but uh but yeah I think it it really stings for Harry when that when that happens and you know it it showed him that yeah Dobby really cared for him and he was willing to do that for for everybody and um yeah it yeah it's yeah it's, that one's a tough one like I said I think I think it's, it's easier to pick that one out too just because so many of the deaths are glossed over and it's harder for me just because so many deaths were spoiled it's that's on me for being taken so long to get to the wizarding world so yeah that's not, not a bad thing though i mean at the time it was like you said it wasn't something that really was for you at the time so you know it makes sense and i mean to me i feel like harry potter isn't really it it's for everybody to watch but it's also not for everybody if that makes any sense like it's it's not gonna be something for everybody but you know i'm, I'm glad you finally come around and and are enjoying the Harry Potter world. So, yeah. Thank you, Emily. Another great question. I hope this is a lot better than my joke and the answer of uh, Lavender Brown. Because <laughs> <laughs> I think of the movie, you just pan over and like there's there's dead Lavender Brown. <laughs> like yeah. big old big old battle going on. Quick shot. Lavender Brown's dead. Okay. <laughs> Back to whatever's going on. Anyway, any anyway. hooters, look what's going on over there. <laughs> but it would have been badass to see, like, uh, friend Rear Gray back, like, sitting there gnawing on her or something. <laughs> That's yeah. who kills her, right? Is friend Rear Gray back? Yeah. We never see him in his full werewolf form. No, we don't. If there's if there's an alternate <laughs> like a rated R horror movie style Harry Potter, I want to see Fender Greyback like gnawing on Lavender Brown. And I have no personal neglect against Lavender Brown. I just thought it would be funny. <laughs> so I thought that actress played uh, when I thought the actress who played Lavender Brown did a great job when she was obsessed with Ron. Her Juan Juan. Juan Juan, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, she did a really great job of that. <laughs> yeah. Makes me sad that she caught so much flack on set of I want to say it was a goblet of fire. Her blood prince, she caught some fetching, which is that's just horrible. Mm. So I look at her like she looks great in those films. So what the hell. Yeah. 
<laughs> whatever. <laughs> yeah, whatever. <laughs> um, our next question is from my good friend Jasmine, another Gryffindor. And uh, her two questions are, what was your favorite book to movie conversion and why? And also, what was your least favorite movie compared to the book? Definitely, for me, my favorite book to movie was uh, Chamber of Secrets. Um, And, I mean, Chamber of Secrets, I have two. Chamber of Secrets and Goblet of Fire. Um, Those two are my absolute favorites. Um, I really don't have a least favorite. Um, I know there's, you know, obviously in the later films, there's a lot of changes. There's a lot of differences between, you know, the 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 book and the movie. And it's not as loyal as, like, basically the first, it's probably safe to say the first four books, where the first four films and the books, like, they're definitely, the movies are, are loyal to the book. Like, they're, they're really, there's slight changes, um, but there's not really anything really glaring. And it's things that really weren't, not really that important anyway. So, um, but yeah, my, my two favorites is, yeah, Chamber of Secrets and Goblet of Fire. And yeah, I don't really, I don't have a least favorite. Um, I, I recognize the differences between the books and the films and the later ones, but eh, it doesn't bother me. Um which is, is kind of surprising to me because I'm very much the person who it has to be like as loyal as ever <laughs> if you're going to, you know, do a, a book to, to film. But in this, it, it doesn't really bother me all that much. So, yeah, I don't have a least favorite. Well, we are on the same page and the opposite page at the same time. <laughs> Um, because my favorite book to movie comparison is also Chamber of Secrets, because I think, I think what really helped that one was the fact that Chris Columbus did the first one and the second one, and he had a huge passion to convert the books into films. So I think he was, he felt more of a duty to remain more faithful to the books than the directors that would precede him. Um, it seems to have most the most book content in it, apart from maybe uh, Philosopher slash Sorcerer's Stone, or what do we call it in the episodes? Harry Potter and the Cool Rock. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so we didn't have to do we didn't have to do the whole Sorcerer Philosopher debate, <laughs> but um, um I, I I have to say this Chamber of Secrets was probably the most fatal to the book, and that's probably why it's my favorite. Of the, even though my favorite book is Prisoner of Azkaban, I think I said in that episode why it wasn't my favorite movies because I think it really lacked the suspense of having Sirius be anywhere mm-hmm. at any time. But uh, I do have a least favorite, and I think it's a popular least favorite. I'm going to say Goblet of Fire. I think um, I do love the book Goblet of Fire. Because it has a lot of good plot in it, but I think the film fails at having a lot of that stuff. And like I, I think I said in the other, in the previous episodes, I think um, one of the biggest faults for Goblet of Fire, apart from leaving such huge chunks of the plot out, like uh, what was the other uh, elf's name? Um, I can't 
can't think of her name right now. Um, the female house elf, I can't, I can't think of her name, but they left her out completely. But I think the biggest flaw with the Goblet of Fire film is I think they reveal that Mad-Eye Moody is not Mad-Eye Mo- Moody. Eh, that they reveal that Mad-Eye Moody is not Mad-Eye Moody too early in the film. Mm. I think uh, David Tennant played that character a little too over the top, like he was playing the Joker. Like, give him that nervous tick of licking his lips and all that stuff. Uh, Barty Crouch Jr., that was his character? Yes. Yeah. Oh, Winky. That was the... That, that, was yes, name. that's it. So they left Winky out completely, but I think David Tennant, no slight against him, I think he played Barty Crouch Jr. a little too over the top. Made him almost Joker-level crazy. Mm. And I think they, they, they reveal that Barty Crouch is Mad-Eye Moody too early in the film. That's fair. And I've I've heard a few people complain that Goblet of Fire is their least favorite film. Mm. You know they want to they want to focus a lot on the Triwizard Tournament itself and get to all this other because it, it, it expands the world a little more with all these other schools. You know you realize there's other schools out there, and then you had to have build up the return of Voldemort again. Mm. So a lot of stuff gets thrown to the wayside, but I think. And it could be just because there was so much in that book that some stuff had to, they had to look so there and look, okay, what can we take out and what can't we? Yeah, because that, that one was kind of the first of the few chunkier books. So, whereas the first three aren't big books. So, it's easy to fit most of that content into a film. Um, but I could see, you know, and then that's where I think I... I you know, forgave it a little bit was because it is a massive book. So, you know, to try and include, you know, almost everything from the book, it would be one hell of a long movie. <laughs> yeah, so yeah. I think in the sense of, of movie runtime, I think it was just, okay, what things can we have in the film? And, you know, what things can we maybe not include or, or things like that. So, I mean, maybe they could have added a few extra things, but yeah, I mean, I still, I still really enjoy the film. I think it's a lot of fun. I really like seeing the Triwizard tournament come to life. I think that's, you know, seeing all the, the, you know, the different challenges and seeing that come to life because I mean, you, you know, you imagine it in your head, but it doesn't have that same impact as when you're actually seeing it come to life. So for me, that's kind of why it's my favorite because that whole thing and then seeing, you know, all the, the other wizarding schools and, you know, that's not just Hogwarts is the main wizard school that there's other ones. And yeah, that's why I really like the film. Um, Yeah. I know there's a lot of stuff that's left out, but yeah, again, it doesn't bother me. And it's, it's my favorite book and film. I was I was tinkering with the thought of Order of the Phoenix just because it didn't. Kill. I think it's been well noted that Order of the Phoenix gave me a fucking anxiety attack when Harry's in Umbridge's office trying to use the flu network. <laughs> but um, well <laughs> I was tinkering with that because it left out so much stuff. But at the same time, because it didn't give me that level of suspense of like Harry could being in trouble with Umbridge, but I think it did enough too to show what kind of threat Umbridge was in the story mm. but um 
Yeah, that's why I, I, I think I took the easy way out and said Goblet of Fire, just because so much of the main plot from the book was taken out of the film. Yeah. I mean, that's totally... And the reveal of Barty Crouch Jr. being Mad-Eye Moody, I think, is just revealed too early. So I, I think I said in that episode, too, is that... Uh, those who read the book going into the film knew that Barty Crouch was Mad Eye, but I think they revealed it too soon for people who may not have seen it. Because Goblet of Fire was the first film I only I saw Goblet of Fire back in college, like 2005, 2006. I didn't pay attention to it back then, but now paying attention to it now, and I had to watch it for homework. I'm like, yeah, I think they kind of tipped their head a little too easily that this is not Mad Eye Moody. Yeah, I, I would agree with that. They they could have played it out a little bit longer than they did, but that's okay. yeah. When they show the did the flashback come first to Barty Crouch appearing before the Ministry of Magic? Yes. They show him acting all they show him acting all banana sandwich and crazy <laughs> like licking his lips and shit. Then like not long later they show Mad Eye Moody licking his lips and like. Okay, spoilers. Yeah. Well, this isn't Mar- <laughs> this isn't Mad Eye Moody. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> now, that's probably the biggest strike I have against. I do like the film, but I think it's the biggest strike against is I think the reveal of Barty Crouch being being a Mad Eye is spoiled too early in the film. Yeah, and I would I would definitely agree on that. I mean, that's fair. Hey, David, can you play this character in more of a 9 instead of an 11? <laughs> Heath Ledger's already been cast as the Joker in the Dark Knight, David, so can we tone it down a little bit? Maybe maybe tone it down to a 10. Yeah. <laughs> I think that was always one thing that stuck out in my memory. I watched that film uh, late last later last year. It's like... He's playing him very crazy. Yeah. I mean, that's kind of the character, but yeah, it was maybe, maybe a bit much, but nah, whatever. Well, <laughs> it's, it was it, such an extreme clash of personalities between how Jim Dale read him and how David Tennant performed him. Because <laughs> with, with Jim Dale at the end, when it's revealed, when he's, doing his exposition dump of his grand, he's doing his villain monologue of his grand plan, his bond villain monologue. Oh, yeah. He's he when he's under that truth serum, he, he's speaking very much is it veritas serum. Is that what it is? Yes. Um, he, Jim Dale performs it like he's being hypnotized, like he's a zombie or a robot. It was this and then this and then this and then this and then this, like he's very, he's reading it very like he's under a trance. <laughs> or something like he's being hypnotized. Like uh, our friend Tim Rooney jokes about how Paul Rudd's performance in Halloween Six, A Curse of Michael Myers, how dry and blasé his performance is, very like robotic. We have been drugged. That's how I feel Jim Dale's performance is as Barty Crouch in the book. But then you get to David Tennant, and he's just bouncing off the fucking walls and shit. It's like. Huh. <laughs> quite, quite the personality 
clash. We we swing from one side of the spectrum to the other here with a personality of Barty Crouch. Yeah. <laughs> spoiled rich. I guess the spoiled rich kid is nuts. Yeah. <laughs> but, uh, thanks, Chaz, for writing in. Uh, that was good. Uh, that was that one really made me think. A lot of these questions made me think that that one took some time to think about. Because mm. um, I, I I tend not to have like least favorite stuff. I try to go in with low expectations, but I really think yeah, you look break it down when it comes to like book to film comparison. I think Goblet of Fire suffers the most because it has the most taken out of it. Mm. Yeah, for sure. Our next set of questions comes from my friend Stephanie, who's a Hufflepuff. Yay! Um, she's got a few questions. So the first one is, if you could redesign the house crests, what would they be? What colors and animals would you pick? Now, this one, my goodness, uh, was definitely a brain melter, even for someone like me. <laughs> um I I've got two out of the the four. Um, for Gryffindor, I wouldn't I wouldn't change the colors or anything, but maybe instead of because it's it's a lion, uh, I would choose a phoenix because it's it's you know that rising up from the ashes. It's very much like you know like Gryffindor sort of personality of. You know, rising up, always, you know, looking to be better and sort of things like that. And then something, I don't know how I would work it in, but something with Godric Gryffindor's sword within that or something. Um, I, I'm not really sure how I would how I would design it, but those two things that kind of came to mind for design, while keeping the, the gold, uh, sort of red-yellow colors of Gryffindor. Um, Slytherin and Ravenclaw, I really had a hard time with, um, and ultimately I came to the conclusion of, I wouldn't change them because I think they're so specific that it would be kind of weird to change like Slytherin to have like a animal be a turtle or something. (laughs) I I don't know. it, It really didn't. I couldn't think of really any other animal that would sort of fit for that other than a snake, which fits with Slytherin. So, and then Ravenclaw too, that one's very specific. So that one, I wouldn't change. I really like the the choices and everything that was made with that one. So um, those two, I definitely wouldn't change. Um, Hufflepuff, I wouldn't change the colors, but I did think of a bear. For the animal, because um, they're you know protective, resourceful, and they're loyal, and I think you know a bear would sort of fit with that for for an animal if they were to change that. But otherwise, yeah, um, I wouldn't really change um, a lot of those because I think they all work for each of their houses, and they're very well suited uh, to each house, and and the colors are too. So. Yeah, uh, those two changes from Gryffindor and Hufflepuff, but the other two, no, I would definitely keep. It's funny how you mentioned that um, 
you picked a bear for Hufflepuff because I was doing some research before we hit record because the only one I was going to tackle was my house, Hufflepuff. So I was wondering why, okay, we're, we're considered the wussy house for some reason, <laughs> but our colors are yellow or yellow and black and we have a badger. And I was trying to figure out how that was associated with loyalty. Apparently from what I read is that originally JK Rowling was going to use a bear. Oh. But she went with a badger instead. And I, I I went to MuggleNet online, and I want to give this author the proper uh, notice she deserves. So um, Amy Hogan wrote an article on the meaning behind the animals of Hogwarts houses, and she went with the Hufflepuff badger. You can find this on MuggleNet. I believe she did articles on the other three houses, too. And this one was good for her because she's also a Hufflepuff. So that this was a little more meaningful for her. But, um, yeah, that one I was going to tackle. And I jokingly say I was going to tackle the colors mostly because I'm, I'm not an Iowa Hawkeye fan. <laughs> I live in the state of Iowa, and their <laughs> colors are yellow and black. So now I told my I told uh, my friend Beth Ann, I go, well, being a Hufflepuff, I have an excuse to say to wear gold and black now. Like, it's a little... I'm Hufflepuff, not because I'm an Iowa fan. Because <laughs> <laughs> I always had to, I always had to explain why I'm wearing yellow, and, yellow and black. Oh, it's because the Boston Bruins or Pittsburgh Pirates or mm. what have you. But now I could say I'm like it's because I'm a Hufflepuff. <laughs> but that was gonna be that was gonna be the one I was gonna change because it just felt the most odd to me. Then mm. doing some research on why badgers were used and um. Amy went into some uh, research about how badges are portrayed in different lores, and especially like Native American lore, Celtic lore, how these badges still stay loyal to each other. They're very clan-based in very in many cultures. Uh, they're very welcoming and loyal to like there. There was a Native American story told by the Sioux about a family of badgers who would have this bear come to them a hungry bear and they would still feed the bear when it was hungry. Then the bear kicked the badgers out of their home and the badgers stayed loyal and the spirit came and removed the bear from their home and the badgers got their home back. I believe she also talked about uh, how badgers are portrayed in Germanic lore as well. So like, okay, I'll stick with the badger. And, um, I would have changed the color. I want to juggle and change the colors to maybe orange and black for mm-hmm. the um, colors of Hufflepuff because the yellow is supposed to represent the sun and very earthy colors, and black is supposed to represent the soil because Hufflepuffs have a tendency to be very uh, good at herbology. That's like one of the topics or the one of the subjects they excel at, which makes you wonder why Neville wasn't uh, sorted into Hufflepuff originally. But apparently he wanted to be. Mm. But um, yeah, I probably would have gone with orange. Maybe do do more of the sun. That and I don't have to wear gold and black anymore. Explain why I have to wear gold and black. <laughs> I'm not re-knitting you a scarf. <laughs> <laughs> I'll just dye those parts red. Maybe I'll put some red dye on it. <laughs> Make hopefully it'll come out orange. 
But I did, I did, I did kind of fall into a rabbit hole this morning doing research on uh, on Hufflepuff. It turns out it's J.K. Rowling's favorite house, even though she's a Gryffindor. Neat. And her daughter says that we should all be like Hufflepuffs also, because they say the Hufflepuffs have the second most representation at the Battle for Hogwarts. Mm-hmm. The Slytherins tuck their tails and run. Some of the Ravenclaws kind of take off, too. Yeah. Um. That's the only thing I'd redesign. Cause I, like you said, I think Slytherin's too on the nose. Like with the green and the silver and the snake, it's snake in the grass. Mm-hmm. Well, but I always wonder why the raven. I, would, I do always kind of wonder why Ravenclaw went with an eagle instead of a raven. Because aren't ravens supposed to be considered very smart? Yeah, they are. But yeah, I don't I don't know why why they wouldn't have have gone with that, but um. <laughs> But I also like the point how this article pointed out with the colors of Hufflepuff being yellow and black. The other three houses have metals as theirs mm. and a gold, silver and bronze. You see you're you're blue and bronze, right? Uh in in the books, it's blue and bronze, and in like in the films, it's blue and uh, gray or silver. Because so they say that metals are very bendable, which kind of explains some of the personality, the, the traits of some of those people in those other houses. Mm-hmm. I guess I would say, but black is very down to earth and solid. It represents soil, the earth, so. Mm-hmm. I like that explanation. So I, I was also going to think maybe purple too, but when reading into the yellow and everything, um, I'm okay with yellow and black. Get so I have a new excuse why I wear yellow and black to say I'm not a Hawkeye fan. <laughs> <laughs> and Stephanie really melted our brains with some of these questions, which I I, I love. I I love a good challenge. Mm-hmm. So Stephanie's next question is, what song would you pick for each house? Now this one, this one did definitely give me a, a good minute, but once I thought of each one, it was like boom, 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 boom. And what really helped me was I actually looked up, um, like people have made playlists for each Hogwarts house, and so it kind of helped me. Like I, I know sort of you know the personality traits and things of each of each house, but it was really neat to see like these people making these different playlists with you know those houses in mind and and you know kind of you know Hufflepuff is more like the the happy good vibes songs and then you know um like you know Gryffindor a little bit happier a little bit more like kind of motivating kind of songs sort of things like that and so yeah that kind of helped me to sort of get a sense of songs and then um but then i kind of thought of a few sort of after it was like okay i kind of thinking about the the personality traits of each house and and my immediate one and this one's sort of a (laughs) sort of sort of a jokey one uh, but I think it kind of works with Slytherin just based on their 
you know, they, they'll call out people if they, you know, something doesn't go their way or whatever, or they really disagree with something or just there's sort of that side of them. Um, <laughs> I picked uh, We're Not Going to Take It by Twisted Sister. <laughs> <laughs> That one, and then also um, uh, Whistleblower by the Arkells. And it's basically, that song is like, it's it's calling out the, you know, the, the media. It's telling truth. It's, it's, you know, kind of along the lines of, like, leaking information, but making that, you know, in the, in the sense of telling truth and, and not lying or things like that. And, uh, so yeah, that's kind of the, those two songs. But yeah, the, the we're not going to take it sort of suited them. I felt that was my immediate thought with that. <laughs> that, that that's an interesting approach because with Slytherin, I went with uh, "Bad Reputation" by Joan Jett. Ooh, yeah, that's a good one too. I always like to openly tease people who think they're badasses for being Slytherin. <laughs> they, yeah. think, they think they're badass for being a Slytherin, and I just think like. Because Slytherins see happen in the films and the books just seemed so happy and content being themselves. Like uh, look at uh oh shit, what's her name? Um, what was Draco's girlfriend's name? Part uh, um, oh god, Rands of the P. Pansy uh, Pansy yeah, Parkinson. Pansy Park, yeah. How willing she's just. She's just willing to give up Harry to Voldemort when the Death Eaters are calling for him. Mm. Or how Draco is just so happy just being himself until until he has his little redemption arc there at the end. Um, yeah, how, for example, like just Pansy Parkinson just willing to give up Harry at the end. And these, these Slytherins are just gonna be such jerks to people in these films and they just don't care. Mm-hmm. But I think of Joan Jett, I don't give a ba- damn about my bad reputation. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that, I like that one. <laughs> I think a lot of mine are going to be 80s based. <laughs> <laughs> mine are surprisingly... I, I did... Because I kind of went through my own personal playlist. And... Um, I went with more modern songs, surprisingly, uh, except for one, <laughs> uh, which is probably really, really old. I don't know how old, but anyway. Um, yeah, I surprisingly, I went with my more modern songs for my choices for each house. So, yeah. So what's the next house you picked? Uh, well, how I have them listed, uh, the next one I put was, uh, Hufflepuff, and I actually have three, but I listened to, I, I listened to the, the two songs anyway, um, again, and, and one of them, nah, didn't really fit, I, I didn't think, um, uh, ultimately, so I kind of skipped that one, but, um, my first choice, and <laughs> I, just to, to preface that, I'm I'm a big Arkells fan. Um, I really love the band. They're kind of a pop rock band. Um, they're Canadian, and I've seen them many many times, and I absolutely adore them. I think they're a lot of fun, and they 
make a lot of great songs. So most of these I have are are Kell songs in with my listing. So this other one is a newer one from them, and it's called Arm and Arm, and it's it's such a feel good song. And then I feel like that's it's, a, it's about like you know um, a lot of it was inspired by these recent couple years and that um and now being able to kind of hang out with everybody and see people and um have good times and you hear a song and like one one of the lyrics is like you hear a song and you know we're dancing together arm in arm and um i think that's very much you know hufflepuff like it's it's good times and good people and i think that song kind of fits them um i also did think of um Imagine by John Lennon, um, you know, imagining like, you know, obviously like good things and and what if there wasn't these things and sort of being a little bit more um, kind of grounded, which is very much what Hufflepuff is. They're very grounded. They're very earthy. They're very, you know, um, I feel like they're they're kind of, you know, connected to to Earth and very much so through obviously their herbology um through plants and things like that so yeah those are my two choices um i think my first choice is definitely being arm in arm because i think that suits them very much i can't say i heard that i don't i haven't listened to the arkells so i might you be should. a little lost I, I know this. Yeah. but um with hufflepuff i chose two and one of them was kind of a joking one and that one was uh never gonna give you up by rick ashley <laughs> I and the two songs I picked for them, I went based off of the aspect of loyalty to Hufflepuff. Like Rick Ashley says right there, never gonna give you up, never gonna let you down, never gonna run around and desert you. So it's right there in the lyrics, right there. Exactly, it's obvious. And, and I mean, come on, every time it played, they could be Rick rolling everybody. Yeah. <laughs> you just got puffed. <laughs> um and then uh this one i kind of went i did my more of my research on hufflepuff and how they're the most second most represented house in the battle of hogwarts it shows that that they have that loyalty to the school and to their classmates and another one i went with another 80s song uh, love is a battlefield by pet benatar yes heartache to heartache we stand no one can tell us we're wrong Mm. We are strong. Yeah, that's a good one. I like. I that. told you. I think. I think I'm going all 80s here. <laughs> hey, nothing wrong with that. <laughs> the, the 80s was a time of very, uh, um, very uh, catchy songs, earwormy songs, and very uh, niche songs. I think. Oh, very much so. <laughs> So what's the next house we're going to play, make the playlist for? Uh, Gryffindor. And my, my first one, and I sort of had the thought of it being a song that they could, you know, like a lot of, you know, sports teams will have like a theme song. They'll have a song. And I thought of um, our local uh, Lakehead University hockey team and they're, theme song like for the, the when they introduce everybody at games is Kamina Barana 
by Carl Orff. And it's that loud, just part of it. And um, I, I thought of that for Gryffindor for making like making that entrance, making that powerful entrance, and especially before like a Quidditch match. I think that would be really epic. <laughs> oh, Fortuna. <laughs> yeah. So yeah, that was sort of my choice for like. Uh, you know, before a Quidditch match, I think that would be just super cool. And then, uh, once again, if you can't tell, uh, you know, the Arkells fan, uh, uh, their most recent song, Years in the Making. Um, I think that's another one that's very much like, it's, um, you know, I, I think it's it's very much like kind of a really good hype song and, um definitely one that you know be kind of a good motivator for for them and they're because that's kind of who they are and so yeah those, those are my two my two picks for for Gryffindor I'm going back to the 80s and I went with another theme song mm-hmm. kind of that psych up song I went Eye of the Tiger by Survivor <laughs> <laughs> nice because <laughs> I think a lot of as, as jokingly as it sounds, when you look at a lot of those lyrics, it's it very goes much well goes with what Gryffindor stands for is being braver, uh, being brave, and rising up to challenges and all that stuff. Mm-hmm. So I think you want to go obvious with them being lions. You could go to the lion sleeps tonight, but. Um, <laughs> I think Eye of the Tiger suits them pretty well. But it's also got it's another well-used theme song with sports teams too. It's got that beat to get you all pumped up to. Mm-hmm. So I went with Eye of the Tiger by Survivor. Nice. That's definitely a good choice. Oh, I did also. Um, uh, I did also have another choice. Um, for for Gryffindor, and it was uh, the boys are back. Dropkick Murphys. Yeah, we use that for Tugfest. Thanks to me. <laughs> oh, yeah. All right. So, what do you have for Ravenclaw? Uh, for Ravenclaw, I had um, uh, just like Fire by Pink. Because, you know, it's very much like this one was um, a song that she did for uh, the second Alice in Wonderland film. And it's about being kind of strong, being independent, being um, basically kind of, you know, your own person, which is very much what Ravenclaw is. Like they're very much they march to be their own drum. They, you know, are smart. They're independent. They're creative. You know, they you know, that they are who they are and they're very grounded in, in, in that. And so I thought that one was a really good one for them. Um, and I also thought of, um, under and over it by five finger death punch. Um, because it's very much like, you know, I don't care what you think of me, you know, you can, there's a, my, one of my favorite, um, 
you know, the, the, I do have a favorite lyric in that one um, because it's just so like, fuck you to <laughs> to to people and and what they think of you know they may think of you or whatever and um where is it now yeah there's the there's the line um you know, fist in the air and a finger to the sky. Do I care if you hate me? Do you want to know the truth? Say la vie, adios, good riddance. Fuck you. It's like, yes. <laughs> I love that part of the song. And I feel like that's totally uh, what Ravenclaw is. Like, they're just, you know, now we're not, you know, we're not going to be like anybody else. We're not going to be a cookie cutter. We're going to be who we are. And, and then... Um, kind of as a joking one, mostly based on title alone, uh, is Book Club by Arkells. Because, you know, Ravenclaw is very much about the books and, and learning from books and, and very, um, I'd say like book smart. So that was sort of my thing. And then the song, too, is about like having knowledge of, of you know, music and things and, and having that music knowledge. And so you know, Ravenclaw may have that knowledge of random facts and things. And so, yeah, those were my three picks for Ravenclaw. Nice. I, I have to say this one, Ravenclaw, I think was probably the hardest one to think of for me. Cause I, it's intelligence and individuality and creativity I can't say I'm honestly not familiar. I'm a Death Punch fan, but uh, I'm really not familiar with a lot of the songs you picked. But um, I went with uh, Break Free by Queen. Oh, nice. They want to break the mold and be their own people. Mm-hmm. And uh, are Ravenclaws known to be like very secretive or anything? So I was also going to think our lips are sealed by the Go Go's. They keep that 80s theme going. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean they would. They're not maybe not so much sort of secretive, but they could keep a secret. You know, somebody like especially, you know, I'm going to obviously use me as an example. Um, you know, somebody's telling something to me in confidence. I'm not going to. My my lips are seriously they're they're super glued shut. Like I'm not gonna be that person. That's very much I think Ravenclaw too is that no like you you can tell them something in confidence and they will like take it to their freaking grave. Like <laughs> you know it's not gonna be something that um you know they're gonna you know yell from a rooftop or something. Um but I think that they can also be maybe like sort of secretive if they wanted to be if they wanted to keep something from someone you know they they could um but i don't think in in so much of a like a bad way you know like more or less a good way um but uh yeah so that that would fit too and the only other thing i could think of is i just i I couldn't think of specific songs by these artists but i think of bands that have their own sound that is uniquely them mm. like to keep my 80s theme going like devo or prince yeah. or while prince is very poppy he still has his own thing or um oingo boingo danny elfman's band 
yeah they very much have their own thing or to break my 80s theme uh primus primus yeah, is the, the one band i cannot describe to anybody they are their they are in their own freaking category when it comes to stuff yeah. so while they may not have songs that would like particularly relate to a ravenclaw they are very uniquely them unapologetically uniquely them yeah very much so uh, stephanie's last question are there any harry potter theories you've heard that you strongly or agree or disagree with honestly and, uh, well stephanie used the example of Arthur Weasley asking Harry about the purpose of a rubber duck as a distraction for Harry. And she ended up sending me this big, long uh, description of that throughout the books of like, while with Arthur being uh, working for the Muggle Artifact Department of the Ministry of Magic, he'd think he would know all this stuff. But they brought up points of like having Harry help him with the turnstile and at the during the subway and all this other stuff. So you think Arthur would be very knowledgeable about those kind of things with his job. But asking Harry to do these things as a, as a distraction to keep his mind off of it, which I think is a very good, solid theory. I have, I would strongly agree with that one because it also plays. You know, I, I think my love for the whole Weasley family has not gone unnoticed um, throughout our podcast episodes and discussions with people. But, mm-hmm. um, I think it's also just another amazing characteristic attribute to Arthur Weasley. Is that they got to be one of the most lovable families in all of fictional history. I, I, I would, I'd strongly agree with that. Example. So is there any theories that you have heard or thought of over the years that you strongly disagree with? Honestly, I over my my years of being a, a Harry Potter fan, I've never really dived into any of that stuff. Um, I, I kind of had to Google like Harry Potter fan theories <laughs> because I didn't really know a lot of them because it just wasn't something that I really, you know, dove into. Um, so. Yeah, I mean, I could see, definitely agree with, like, you know, Arthur Weasley, I think, knowing, you know, the, you know, the purpose of a rubber duck, but using it as a way to, you know, change the subject or whatever, I think is very much, that's very much him. Um, you know, he's very curious about things, and I don't think he's, yeah, with his job, it's very much muggle artifacts and things, but, you know maybe not everything so maybe it was a legitimate thing or it was him okay i need to change the subject well what can i oh what's the purpose of a rubber duck and that's you know throws things off to something else so because he would care enough to do that because it's just you know who he is and um so yeah i haven't i i can't say i've really heard any or that i disagree or agree with because yeah, I, it's not something I've really dove into because there's so many ones that are very far-fetched and, you know, so, um, you know, there was there's a couple when I was sort of reading through that, you know, there were 
I think it's more jokingly, but that, oh, like Hufflepuff was like the, the stoner house because, you know, well, they're herbology, right? They, they love the herbology. So maybe they're growing something, you know, on the side or something, but, you know, and how happy-go-lucky they are. And it's just, no, I don't see that. And, you know, th- there's only one that I, I did like in my reading was um, that about Neville and that he had that he basically he was using the wrong wand because he was using his father's wand and the wand didn't choose him because obviously, you know, the wand chooses the wizard. And so that really explains, you know, because the wand didn't choose him explains, you know, the misfires and, you know, the different sort of situations he's gotten himself into. And then when, you know, finally, you know, he gets a new wand, well, the wand chooses him. So then, you know, it, it helps him, you know, get through the, you know, be leader of, you know, Dumbledore's army. So it, it helps him. So he's not, you know, having those clumsy sort of moments. So, like, that's one I, I very much agree with because um, it's it's definitely a legitimate one. Um, but, yeah, I'm I'm not really one to dive into a lot of those sort of fan theories and things where some of them are, yeah, you could see that. But, yeah, over my time of, of that, nah, um, I don't, I don't have any that I agree or disagree with. Stephanie sent me a TikTok of this guy doing a bunch of Harry Potter theories. I can't remember them all for the life of me. I'll have to send it to you. Mm-hmm. But there was one where the only one that I can remember was from Deathly Hollows, and why was it easier for six people to turn into Harry Potter? With the uh, apologies potion instead of Harry Potter changing to somebody else. <laughs> but um, I think all the Harry Potter theories I have heard have been proved in canon already. Mm-hmm. I, I do not, for the life of me, remember who brought it up. That there's a theory that the uh, defense against the dark arts. Perfect uh, spot is cursed. That's why yeah. there's so many different professors every year. And I cannot remember who brought that up to me, but so I, I was I've been told that it has been confirmed in continuity that that's that Tom Riddle did in fact curse that position. Um, I've heard. I think Stephanie even brought up there's a theory that Hagrid was a Hufflepuff when he was in school, mm. which makes a lot of sense. Um. Oh, and I heard one too. Like I think it's probably just a meme on the internet. Um, that the reason why Voldemort is bald is so nobody can use Polyjuice potion, make a Polyjuice potion of him out of it. Mm. Much like you, but much like you, I haven't heard many other ones Mm. um like that. But I, I do love the one that Stephanie sent me about Arthur Weasley yeah. and using the, that stuff as a distraction. Because mm-hmm. it, it totally fits him. Because that's just something he would do because he would care enough to be like, to recognize that, okay, you know, conversation needs to be 
changed or distraction needs to be made, what can I immediately think of? And okay, the most random, it's kind of the most random question, but it's also very natural for him because of how we know, like how curious he is and how willing he is to learn about different things and how excited he gets to learn about these things. So it's not really out of character for him. So it works very well for him to be like, okay, what's the purpose of a rubber duck? You know, <laughs> it doesn't sound like he's being stupid. It's him naturally asking this question and presenting it in a genuine way to distract from whatever. So, yeah, that totally works. Well, he, he definitely has that passion for learning all about because it's in the Chamber of Secrets and the, while they're out getting the school supplies and hogs, I mean, they show him uh, uh, talking to uh, Hermione's parents, who are muggles. Yeah. Which I like to see there. I'd love to see Hermione's parents' perspective on all this. Mm-hmm. Like, be- I'd like to see how... I would like to see the perspective other than the Dursleys. The perspective of... Um, a muggle have uh, somebody being muggle born i'd love to see their parents's reaction to all this stuff apart from the dears because i wonder if uh, hermione's parents parents would be more accepting of this than what the dearsleys were mm-hmm. so just like a random thought i'd like to see what the what the the grangers um outlook would be on all this stuff like what are their views when they step into hogsmeade for the first time all this stuff and just seeing all this stuff around them yeah, I I would like to see that too because it would be really interesting to 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 see that because obviously they're very accepting of their of their daughter and um you know very much supportive of her like that's what obviously it seems like that because they obviously they sent her to to the school so you know they they recognize you know abilities and things like that and so. Yeah, I could, I could see, but it would be really interesting to see it from their point of view, and and you know, I would love to see, the, yeah, their reaction to, you know, like Hogsmeade or Diagon Alley or, you know, the, those things. Like that would be really neat. Yeah, Diagon Alley. That's what I meant. Shit. <laughs> <laughs> it's early in the morning. <laughs> All good. There's, I, I even myself get confused sometimes, so it's all good. <laughs> yeah. yeah. So yeah, because I'd really like to see uh, the Granger's reaction to being in Diagon Alley, getting supplies with Hermione. Because like I could do without like the random Muggle perspective of things. Like yeah, when all the Muggles was it no no less than four Muggles spotted you in the flying car. Yeah. It, like I don't, I don't really care much about the random muggle um, look on things because, like, if I look up and saw a flying car, like, it's pretty fucked up. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, I'd like, I'd like to see, like, I would love to see Hermione's parents' take on, uh, on the Wizarding world. Hmm. That would be really neat. Well, thank you, Stephanie, for those questions. Those are really good ones. Mm-hmm. And so our last question comes from Beth Ann, who's also a Ravenclaw. 
Um, why do you think the sorting hat put Harry into Gryffindor and not Slytherin? Had Harry been in Slytherin, would there have would he have followed? I'm gonna start over. <laughs> why do you think the sorting hat put Harry into Gryffindor and not Slytherin? Had Harry been in Slytherin, would he have followed he who should not have been named, or would he have followed Dumbledore? And would the house choice have affected his relationship with Snape? Well, let's break it down. Let's let's break it down by part. So the first part of the question: Why do you think the Sorting Hat put Harry into Gryffindor, not Slytherin? Well, I think because you know you saw that. I, I think that the Sorting Hat kind of sensed that. You know, and I think even it mentioned that you can you know do great things, but you can do great things in Gryffindor as well, because that's sort of what Gryffindor is. And Gryffindor is also about, too, like, much like, you know, like Hufflepuff and loyalty, very much is Gryffindor as well. And that's kind of where Harry is at. And I think, you know, the and Harry did say, you know, not Slytherin. As much as he would have, you know, fit into that, um, I think the Sorting Hat, you know, sort of, figured out that you know what i think you know okay he doesn't want slytherin i mean he could have been placed in the other houses as well but um i think gryffindor ultimately was the best fit for him that as a section second option for him um so yeah i think out of out of loyalty and um you know it could also sense that bravery in him and so yeah i think that that's ultimately why and then he he kind of listened to harry too saying that he didn't want to be in slytherin so okay what's the next best thing gryffindor yeah i, I leaned heavily on this, this answer mostly what harry says to his son at the end of um deathly hollows is that the hat the sorting hat takes your uh your opinion into consideration because i know his youngest son was concerned about what if he got put in Slytherin. Well, then he says, I then Slytherin will get a really great wizard. Mm-hmm. And I think the Sorting Hat, the Sorting Hat has to know who Harry Potter is, right? Other than McGonagall reading his name. Mm-hmm. So him knowing that the boy who lived is there while having similar attributes to Tom Riddle at the time. Maybe he saw that he could read Harry's mind more than what we, more than what you see in the film or in the books that he was able to do between the pages. You see that the sorting hat took picked more out of Harry's brain than is revealed. That he has this, he has the tendencies to be a great leader and all this other stuff. So, so I don't know. I think the sorting hat just, I think the Sorting Hat knows more than he leads on in the books and the films. So why he that's why he chose Gryffindor for Harry. Because mm-hmm. you brought up the good point that he could do great things in Slytherin too as well. Mm-hmm. So I think I think the Sorting Hat knows more than he leads on. I think so too. And I always had this random theory. Um, do you think the Slytherins got pissed off? At the sorting ceremony, when Harry's saying "whispering not Slytherin, not Slytherin," and the Harry the hat just goes "not Slytherin." <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah. 
Maybe. Slither dude, like, is that guy talking shit about us? <laughs> <laughs> or, or maybe you know, because you know he's the the you know the boy who lived. Well, they don't get that satisfaction of that smug satisfaction, you know. So of oh, we have the boy who lived, you know. Oh damn, we don't get that. So I guess you know, you know, maybe being a little bit annoyed with that because they don't get to be like smug about it, right? <laughs> well, well, when you meet the you, when you meet most of the Slytherin characters right away, they they seem very smug off the jump. Oh yeah. As soon as you meet them, and when you meet Harry, like Harry has his smug moments, I think, in the books, but you don't really get that when you first meet him too. So it seems like they're very un, they're very black and white with some of these houses' personalities when you first meet them. It seems mm-hmm. like. Because yeah. otherwise, Hermione, Hermione could have been a great Ravenclaw too. Oh, absolutely. There's there was a, a kind of a theory I had read that they basically all three of them chose Gryffindor, because um, it's essentially being like three of them being sort of stronger together, so being in in one house. Um, because, I mean, they do, I mean, and that reasoning, too, like, for Hermione being Gryffindor, you know, having that courage to, you know, step into this wizarding world, because she's obviously muggle-born, and, you know, not coming from a wizarding family and having that courage to, you know, step into that world, and, you know, so, but yeah, she could have been, you know, definitely a really great Ravenclaw. Absolutely, but... You know, it's. I think it, it comes down to like the Sorting Hat knowing a little more than it lets on. So maybe, you know, it was sort of like, yeah, she could be really great in Ravenclaw, but maybe you know, Gryffindor a little bit better suited. Because I mean, Ron could have easily been a Hufflepuff. You know, based on his his loyalty and his caring and just kind of who he is, he could have easily been been a Hufflepuff. Yeah. So. So that's I think that's our joint answer is I think the the Sorting Hat knows more than he leads on. Absolutely. Or I got not more than he leads on to know. I I think he the Sorting Hat knows more than is depicted in the books and in the films. Yeah. There's almost like a secret power to this Sorting Hat. Mhm. And and we really don't know other than it. it you know, we, we know it gets a sense of somebody, uh, but we don't really know exactly how, if it reads a mind, if it, you know, like, we don't know. It's It's got mystical powers, so, yeah. The magic talking hat. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, second part of the question, had Harry been in Slytherin, would he have followed he who should not be named, or would he have followed Dumbledore? I think he still would have followed Dumbledore um, because, you know, at the end of the day, he's got a really good heart. And that's ultimately what destroyed Voldemort was love and what didn't kill him. And so I, I don't think he he would have followed. He should be not be named. I don't think he would have followed him at all. Um Unless he was really, truly convinced that it was a really good thing to do. Um, maybe, but no, I think he still would have followed Dumbledore. 
Um, as the time is at the present time that Harry is presented with all this information, the Wizarding World, I too think he would have followed Dumbledore because going into Hogwarts first year, I believe all he knows about Voldemort is that Voldemort killed his parents. Mm-hmm. And all he's heard of Dumbledore is his triumphs and everything. So I think he would be more. And, he's, and Harry's also a very obedient kid, too. So I think he's more liable just to follow um, Dumbledore than anything. Yeah, absolutely. And the third part of the question Would the house choice have affected his relationship with Snape? I don't think so. Um, I think maybe Snape would have had a little bit more respect for him because, oh, he's on his side. Uh, but I don't think so. I, I think he he still would have, um, I think, treated Harry the way he did because I think he, like I, I mentioned in a another previous answer, was that you know, I think Snape sees a lot of James in Harry, and so I, I think he he a lot of his attitude towards Harry is stems from that and how James treated him, like James is serious in them. Um, so he's kind of projecting that attitude towards Harry. Um, so I think that's where that comes from, and I think. Yeah, he, he probably would have had that little bit more respect, but I, I don't think their relationship would have changed very much. I think I'm on the same page as you with this one. Um, it's very much for the fact that you said right there is Snape just sees so much of James in Harry that I don't think you'd be able to get past that. Mm-hmm. But you don't really see him protecting Harry until Prisoner of Azkaban when Lupin changes into his werewolf form or when when Umbridge is trying to uh, use a Veritas serum on him. Or, well, there's the other example of during the Quidditch match and he's... Oh, trying to break the curse that Quivel's putting on him. Yeah. I think Snape he really cares for Harry, but he, he doesn't outwardly show it. Um, so he, he does have his moments of, of definitely protecting Harry, but he still has that uh, resentment. Is that the word, a good word? Maybe like seeing, because he sees James and, you know, like I sort of said that he, you know, projecting that towards Harry. So. You're not wrong in that. I- but I think we probably would have seen, maybe if he was a Slytherin, maybe we would have seen more of that obvious uh, protection of Harry. Because didn't Snape want Lily to be a, a Slytherin too? I, I know she was end up being Gryffindor, but didn't wasn't he trying to sell up Slytherin much like how uh, how uh, Hermione would build up Gryffindor? Yeah, maybe. But, um, I really think I think I think Snape's treatment towards Harry would have a lot bigger effect 
if he didn't see so much of James and Harry. I think I don't I don't think the house relies on it as much as um as much as uh Harry's background does. Mm-hmm. And I mean, you know, I think you know it, it it's not even you know Snape that sees a lot of James and it's even serious too. And even in that that battle at you know when they're they're within the Ministry of Magic and you know Sirius says like nice one James you know like it's just you know it's well, well, but, well let so. me counter that well, let me counter that with my own question then okay. so do you think there's a bias there because it seems like like you said Sirius does see a lot of James and Harry too but it seems like Sirius sees the good attributes of James and Harry while Snape mm-hmm. only sees the marauder part of uh james and harry yeah because of of very much of how james treated snape you know they they didn't treat him very kindly so yeah there's 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 those differences and very two very different extreme points of view where sirius sees the good and you know snape sees the bad so it's 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 the good and bad thing yeah and speaking of serious black, while we're on Beth Ann's um, topic, and we're talking about the sorting hat, mm-hmm. um, Sirius is the first one in his family to be in Gryffindor, right? He's the first one in his family not to be Slytherin, correct? Yes. Yeah. So I think it kind of feeds into the theory that the sorting hat knows more than it's depicted to know. Mm-hmm. And I can see it, like, from, you know, how old is this sorting hat, and how many students is it sorted, and, you know, kind of get to know families and because it's obviously you know generations of of children going to this school so it totally fits that you know the the sorting hat would you know maybe continue that you know that could have been placed in Slytherin but you know Harry said it outwardly that he didn't want to be and out of all the houses you know the sorting hat could have picked obviously besides Slytherin he chose Gryffindor so I think that that could have been a part of that too because yeah, if, it, if it went off of like family tree heritage it easily could have paced, placed Sirius in Slytherin because oh, yeah. the obvious choice is to put Ron in Gryffindor because that's where all of his family has been all of his brothers before him were all Gryffindor mm-hmm. and with both Lily and James being Gryffindors too it's easy to place Harry there too um, but I still think we go along the theory that I think the, the sorting hat, the sorting hat's powers. I don't think we, I don't think J.K. Rowling quite revealed all the sorting hat's powers. No, we we definitely don't know everything about it, and that's okay. I don't want to know everything about it. Yeah, adds to the mystery. Hmm. I think those are all some great questions. Thank you, Beth Ann, and thank you everybody who wrote in. This was fun. It, I love how nerds are always like chastised for putting too much thought into things, and I think this was great. It, these really made me think yeah. and made me do a lot of learning and research about this this stuff that I'm still relatively new to. Um, one point I did want to bring up when I was doing my research um, for Hufflepuff stuff. Apparently, in The Cursed Child, there's an alternate timeline where Cedric Diggory becomes a Death Eater. Oh, yeah. 
Yeah, that's kind of weird. Interesting. <laughs> yeah. It's interesting, though. An interesting thought. Like, what, you know, what would that look like for him? Like, if that, you know, if he didn't die, it's like, well, what, you know, what would that look like for him? Uh, interesting. But, you know, I, I don't understand. You know, I'm going to get up on the soapbox for a quick minute. <laughs> um. You know that, like he's on the on the point that you know nerds being chastised for you know what they love. It's like it's what we're passionate about. It's what we love. It's we like to dive into these things, and you know, especially with Harry Potter fans, you know, they make their own theories, and a lot of them, you know, that fans have come up with have been confirmed that yeah, it's part of canon and it's part of that thing. So. You know, we're very much right in, you know, in our theories and what we think. And I mean, some of them are a little far-fetched, but it's all in the fun. You know, I'm never going to judge anybody for having a theory on something because it's what they think, what they imagine. And it's not impossible to me to think of. And, you know, I'm never going to judge anybody for being passionate about something. You know, if, you know, whatever you really, really love, it's... I. You know, seeing somebody, the, the most joy I get is when somebody is talking about something that they absolutely love and how their face lights up. Like just they they found their, their light, their moment to be, you know, to really share what they love. And that to me is, I just, I, I love that so much because, you know, you get to see somebody share what they really love and, and you know, it doesn't make any sense to me for people being, you know, chastised for that. It's, you know, everybody has their interests, everybody has their loves, and I don't think anybody should be chastised for, for or punished or made fun of for what they really love. I agree 110%. Um, so we we built this podcast around a, a John Berriman quote, and it's Melissa, how come we never apologize for being nerdy? Because unnerdy people never apologize for being assholes. So never let anybody tell you that your nerdiness is embarrassing or let it freak them out. Just because they don't have the same passion you do for Harry Potter, Star Wars, DC Comics, what have you, that they have for anything else. I'm not going to look down anybody who has a huge passion for cars. I don't know jack shit about cars, unless it's a DeLorean, a Batmobile, or an Ecto-1. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not going to look down anybody who has a passion for sports or anything. It's Everybody's passionate about something. Just because you want to dive in deep to Harry Potter more than the average person is looking to go. There's nothing wrong with that. It should be encouraged and not used as an insult like it has been. I can speak from personal experience. I've been told my nerdiness is embarrassing. I've had people freaked out about how much I dive into stuff. Or not freak them out, but I weird them out how much I dive into stuff like this. You know what? I don't care what they think. If you love it, love it. Do what you want to do. Love what you want to love as long as you're not hurting anybody else. Exactly. And that's why I think I, I you know when we first became friends and you told me about that, that, you know, nerdiness was embarrassing. And I basically was like, that's bullshit. 
you know, near, and I and I told you that like your specific nerdiness is not embarrassing. I think it's really cool, and you know, I think you know it. Us becoming friends was the best thing ever because it really busted me out of my shell because I was very much in that. So, you know, we both have the same interests and you both you've like opened doors to a whole bunch of stuff for me, which has been really awesome. And, you know, I've learned so much and I've been willing to learn things because I want, you know, to have that, you know, initial interest, but then even have more of an interest because, you know, learn so much because there is so much to learn i mean i feel i still feel like i'm just dipping a toe into a lot of these things but you know i've still learned a lot and yeah but no your nerdiness is not embarrassing it's not weird it's not stupid it's really fucking awesome <laughs> and neither is yours so i think that's all we have i think all the owls are gone Right now, but I'm, I'd be definitely open to uh, more questions on someday in the future. Yeah. Yeah. Fun. Yeah. Anybody has any other questions about things or anything? But yeah, this has been really fun. I have really loved um, the variety of questions and the questions that really, you know, even myself for being a fan for so long made my brain melt a little bit. But I love that because it, it challenges me. It really. You know, I had to look into different things and, you know, really dive a little bit deeper into something that I initially didn't really, you know, dive into. And so, yeah, it's been really, really awesome. And thank you so much to everyone that sent in questions. Um, they were all very, very awesome. And, yeah, this won't be the last time we talk to Wizarding World here because we, I believe Melissa and I have talked about doing another Let's Talk About It with the Secrets of Dumbledore. Yes. And also, I I have purchased, as of this recording, the first two Fantastic Beasts films. One I have seen, but not since it came out. Mm-hmm. And the other one I haven't seen. So I'm sure we'll probably dive into that, too, once we get to it. Oh, heck yeah. <laughs> but, uh, but thank you to everybody who wrote in. And uh, we will do another episode like this again soon with Harry Potter. I'm all for it. Yeah, um. So one more time, thank you to everybody who wrote in. We greatly appreciate it. We we'll do something like this again. We'll send the owls out to all you guys again and do another. We'll do owl post two sometime. Mm-hmm. But um, Melissa, where can the listeners keep up with you? If they choose to. Uh, they can keep up with me on Twitter and Instagram. Um, on Twitter and Instagram, it's the same handle at Miss Melissa N twenty five. It's all lowercase, nothing fancy. Um. I also have a art page on Instagram and it's called scribbles of a wannabe drawer. And on there you can find all the quirky art and goofy things I do on there. And where can they find you, Jared? Uh, you can keep up with me on Twitter and Instagram at QC underscore Mista M I S T A underscore J. That's where you find the pictures of my beards and of my cat. Wait, scratch that reverse it. Thank you. Uh, you can keep up with me on Twitter and Instagram at QCA underscore Mista, M-I-S-T-A underscore J. That's where you find pictures of my beard and of my cats. Um, I'm also in, in the middle of a play production right now, so you probably find some stuff on there. Um, as a podcast as a whole, you can keep up with us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Nerd United Nations Podcast. And if you want to hear, have your voice heard on this episode, uh, uh, 
If you want your opinions uh, voiced on this show, be sure to send us an email at nerdnationspodcast at gmail.com. And if you want to keep listening to us as a podcast, you can find us in our home at Podbean, Google Podcasts, Apple Podcasts, and iHeartRadio. And on any one of those platforms, be sure to leave a rating and review because it allows us to be a little bit more noticed within the podcast community. And it'll also allow for, you know, new listeners to find us. And we greatly appreciate um, if you leave a, a rating or review. And be sure to stay tuned to your podcast feeds because we have another Nostalgia Wars coming up here where we talk about one of Melissa's favorite cartoons, Space Goofs. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so for Melissa, I'm Jared. This has been another episode of the Nerd Nations podcast. As you know, the world is still scary out there. He who must not be named is hopefully vanquished for now. (laughs) Uh, The best way we can get through these scary times is to be excellent to each other. And nerd on, dudes. The thoughts and opinions expressed by your ambassadors and their guests are theirs and theirs alone. And do not represent the companies they happen to work for. Thank you so much for listening, and we'll see you next time. Thanks for listening, guys.